This is the Veterinary Project Podcast, episode 060. Welcome to the show created by vets featuring absolutely no pets. This is the Veterinary Project Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light. Our resident veterinarians have swapped out their stethoscopes in favor of microphones to bring you the Veterinary Project Podcast, a show focused on real conversations aimed to connect this amazing profession full of remarkable people. Through the sharing of collective stories and wisdom and connecting over the many unique challenges we face, we invite you to join our community of veterinary professionals leading intentional lives. And now, here are the hosts of the Veterinary Project Podcast, Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Just finished up another fun conversation, minimal F-bombs, which was a little bit shocking. We thought, thought we were going to have to screen this one, but it worked out. And Very why is bad. that for those that don't know what we just chatted about? Well, we had one of my favorite people. Um, she's a classmate, Dr. Jordan Woodsworth. So obviously we met in vet school and formed a great relationship. Um, and sometimes when we're chatting, we turn into a little bit of sailor potty mouth. So we were laughing about it in pre-recording, but everything turned out well for the episode. That is correct. Yes, she was, as she said, she can be professional and she totally was. What do you think? Like this, this is a, this is a really interesting episode. This is an area on multiple facets of the conversation, which we've never delved into on our podcast. Well, yeah, I mean, and we said like when we started this, it took us a little while to, to kind of get around to some of these, just these mm -hmm. issues. But I mean, Jordan is an expert in her field. Um, when we get into her bio, I mean, she at the WCVM, she's on the committee on indigenous engagement. Um, and we knew we wanted to have these discussions where you and I are not experts at all. Hence nope. the whole point nope. of this podcast, bring on people that know what they're talking about and let them talk. And I think it's very beneficial for the whole veterinary community that we go into these weird, like not these yep. rabbit yep. holes that aren't in our face all the time. So try and bring that to the forefront. So I was and happy we, with and, and I'm going to jump in there even more. And I'm going to say our goal is to help both ourselves in, in this journey and then our listeners and those that come on the, on the train that is the veterinary project to live with intentionality. Dr. Jordan Woodsworth today is the epitome of that from what our discussion looked like, because yeah. it was our job to shut up and listen and learn in areas that you and I, again, I'll speak for myself. I'm not overtly comfortable with. Well, yeah. And I mean, that's the, it's an interesting thing with discomfort. Like I agree. I'm not comfortable not because I'm shy, wanting to shy away from it. You no. just don't know what you don't know. And I was thinking before this episode, I was like, I don't even really know how I'm going to ask Jordan good questions because my knowledge base is so limited in, in these areas. But I mean, she did a great, she basically took it. Before we turned record on, we said, Jordan, this is your show. We're the guests. You just take it and run with it and it'll be great. And it was. Agreed. Okay, hey, Jonathan, before I jump over uh, and introduce our guest to Jordan with her bio, I'm going to put you on the spot here and see how you managed to squirm out of it. But you should have a quick tip for us today. Oh, do I have a quick tip for us today? And our quick tip goes along with the theme of what our discussion is today. And it's actually not a quick tip. It's a challenge. And our challenge is 
along the same lines as what Mike and I have done with this podcast is I want to challenge everybody that's listening right now. Go try something new. I don't care whether it's taking a different direction home, eating food, or perhaps reading an article from an opposite point of view. Your challenge before two days after you listen to this podcast, whenever it is, is to do something different and actually consciously think about it. And so I'm challenging Mike, I'm challenging myself and everybody there. Go do it. See what neuroplasticity can look like. That first time's the hardest. Let's move from there. And there's a lot of that conversation that we should be having today. Yeah. And, and sorry, I'm going to jump in on this a little bit. Um, I frequently will, will say and quote, you're the average of the five people you hang out with. And I, and I do, do believe that. Like, that's absolutely true. But I do think it's also important to break out of that intentionally and go grab a new perspective, right? And I said in, in our pre-recording with Jordan on Instagram, um, she's one of the few people where I watch pretty much every story she posts because it, Jordan does the heavy lifting for me. She goes and finds all these articles that are very useful and then just puts them in front of me so I can go get perspective that I wouldn't have got just in my normal day today. So that's a great quick tip, Johnny. Everyone Excellent. should do that. You just took it the next step, which means you actually came up with it, which means I got out of it still. Perfect. Hey, the streak is alive and well. Okay, today's guest, Dr. Jordan Woodsworth. Uh, Jordan is a general veterinary practitioner and a PhD candidate and part of the wellness and preventive medicine team at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine's Veterinary Medical Center. She's a 2008 graduate of the WCVM and joined the staff of the VMC in 2012 to start the Wellness and Service Learning Program. Jordan's diverse professional interests include community engagement and social accountability in the veterinary profession, clinical communications, interprofessional work in the area of animal welfare, and elevating the quality and perception of well, well care for cats and dogs. Jordan's work in Northern Saskatchewan is an area of true passion, and she strives to use her role as a veterinary educator to provide opportunities for veterinary learners and practitioners to develop and practice culturally safe approaches to veterinary care. Her personal interests include lake time with her husband, two kids and dog, traveling and enjoying nature, and eating and cooking amazing food. This is a good one. Please enjoy the conversation with Dr. Jordan Woodsworth. All right, Jordan, from the greatest graduating class in the history of veterinary medicine and the most difficult guest to get on this podcast, <laughs> thank you for finally agreeing to come on. Hey, I wasn't actually that difficult because I gave you a bunch of dates originally and then you never got back to me. So it just took a little bit of time. It wasn't all my fault. No, I know. And the truth comes out live. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's all good. It's all good. You're very busy. I know you're doing, I uh, will get into it, your PhD work. And this is actually, I hope it comes up. This is one of the, the skills you have is the setting boundaries. You know, you were very polite. You're like, I got this on the go right now. doesn't work. Then I forgot to follow up. Here we are. So I'm looking forward to where this goes. A now year later, we have Jordan Woodsworth on the podcast. That's right. Okay, Jordan, we have tons to discuss. I'm pushing us just straight into the deep end and we're going to see where we pop up. One of the things for our listeners, Jordan and I are classmates 
And we also worked together early in our career. So we graduated in 2008, 2010, early 2010. We were both associate veterinarians at the same practice. The thing that absolutely stood out, I already knew this about you, but insanely tremendous amounts of confidence. Where does, where does this come from? It's, it's an act, Mikey. Um, no, I don't know, honestly. Like, I think um, I, you know, my, I'm, I'm the oldest grandkid. I'm the oldest kid in my family. I feel like that's like a, a first child kind of trait where you like fake it till you make it kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I have one sibling and she has special needs. And so I did a lot of caregiving and things like that when I was younger. And, um, and so I think that that kind of made me have to trust myself in some ways. Um, and I was really lucky in my vet school time that I had lots of opportunities to work in practice and develop some skills and then, you know, figure out how, how to trust myself, um, in, in a veterinary medical context. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I felt pretty good when I graduated and had tons to learn and still learning all the time, uh, have forgotten a lot of things actually that I don't use on a regular basis, but, but I guess, I don't know. Yeah. I've never really thought about where it comes from, but that'd be my long, short answer. Yeah, no, it was, it was cool to work with you. Um, because despite being classmates, honestly, in, in lots of ways, you were like a mentor because, I didn't have the same level of confidence. Not that like I had some, but I was always like, wow, like Jordan just goes after it. But, but yet when, when you knew you needed to go look, you would like, you had it perfectly figured out. It seemed, I, I always remember, I think it was, was it luxating patellas or something, some sort of surgery. There would always be a surgery where we we're like, have you done it? Nope. Have you? Nope. Should we? Oh, okay. Yep. And then we would just go do something that we've never done before. I mean, that was my favorite. I always, what I tell people about like that time in my career is that we had this amazing peer mentorship thing happening. Right. And, you know, because there were kind of four of us in that clinic environment who all graduated around the, the same time, like between you, me, Tori and Esther. And, uh, and that, you know, so we all had similar you know, learning background and different strengths and skills and things like that. And so it was really, it was really fun to be able to learn together and learn from each other. And I, for me, that was such a valuable, like hugely valuable way to start my career. Cause it, I think it, it helped me to be more confident to have people who had a similar knowledge base than I did um, in, in the same working environment. Cause it was like, we were always bouncing stuff off of each other and, and yeah, doing, doing stuff together that maybe was like beyond our skill set at that point in time. But I think that was kind of how we learned and we, we never, did anything wrong like it was you know we we and we would we made it a, a a point to to get some ce and then teach each other how to do those things like remember we made that plan where i went and learned luxating patellas and fho's and then you went and learned cruciates or however we did that and then we taught each other how to do them and it was it was a great way to learn i loved that yeah it it was and i think like i don't know if we worked together for about two years and i feel like i went from you know, brand new grad. And at the end of those two years, it was like fully functioning general practitioner where anything could come through the door. And it was amazing that, that like environment that we had created. Um, I'm curious, I know I'm jumping ahead, but now you're more in, in an academic setting, this peer learning, like, what are you seeing with that as like, is that, are we moving more that way or where are we at with that? 
That's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, I tend to, we were talking earlier about, about our ages and how we don't necessarily feel the age that we are. And I'm, I'm definitely like that in the learning setting. Cause I just, I think of our learners as my peers. And I think that that's a good mindset because they are going to be our colleagues right away. And so I, I try my darndest to help them develop that mindset too, where it's like, listen, you're already a colleague. And so, you know, this is, you need to start thinking of yourself that way. And I already think of you that way. And, and, you know, they teach me things all the time. And I think that's really lovely, but I will say that, um, we give students intentional opportunities to do peer mentoring as well. So you'll remember both of you when we were in vet school that we had like the second year with your buddies, right? And they still do that, which is great. So there's some some mentoring as we know. Um, but uh, but there's lots of, you know, if you guys remember when we did um, third year vaccine clinics uh, when we were in in third year. Um, so when we started the, the wellness program, we took that and kind of changed it so that it was more intentional and had a better framework around it. So it wasn't just like a fly by the seat of your pants, you take the intern who's on emergency that day, and they try and like kind of sort of oversee it. Um, so now what we do is we have the fourth years who are on our rotation mentoring the third years who are coming through and doing the Saturday vaccine clinic with us. And so, so yes, the fourth years are in the mentorship role. And so, so they're on the, taking the rotation with us, right. And their, their job is to help the third years take their history, do their physical exam, uh, and then kind of come up with a plan. And then they come and present that to us as the clinicians. Um, and what that does is it allows the fourth years to, um, acknowledge both that they have some skills and, and knowledge base to be able to do this. And they often will tell us that they see, holy smokes, I've come so far in the last year since I did this. And the third years see, you know, both that it was great to have the, the backup of having a, more of a peer in the room as opposed to just having a scary clinician. Um, and also they get to see, hey, that's where I'll be in a year. And that's really encouraging to see. Because I think as we all remember, third year is pretty friggin' intense. <laughs> and so a lot of times third years feel pretty drowned in information. And they're having oftentimes a hard time figuring out how they're going to apply that and whether they're going to be able to put it all together. So being able to even spend half a day with a fourth year student who's in it and doing it, um, they get to see, hey, I this is where I'm gonna end up. And I, you know, I have lots of hope for my next year of learning. So wow, this is cool. So we I don't this is my first time hearing this. And I mean, this is making so much sense because I'm thinking back to being a student. And if you're dealing with a resident and they can just rattle off stuff and you're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like you're so many steps ahead of me. But if it's a third to a fourth year relationship, like it's just one step ahead. So that seems doable. I mean, yeah, makes, absolutely. Yeah, it makes tons of sense. Um, okay, backing up a little bit, because this program at, at the veterinary college, you you started like the new version of it. You're you're the one that completely revamped it. So I want to even go one step before that, because I knew you as like you loved clinical practice, right? The relationships, the clients. And I remember when you were toying with the idea of going over to the university and, and you had a bit of conflict because you truly loved what you did and you saw all this opportunity. So could you kind of, kind of walk us through that and then we'll dive into the program that you started? Cause I want to hear more about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So like you and I were kind of both in a, in a little bit of a state of like, what do we do now when we were, you know, after those couple of years of working together and, and um, you know, we had talked about buying a practice and all those sorts of things. And then that didn't happen and you moved on to another clinic. And, um, and so, yeah, I was kind of like, well, what the heck do I do? And what I know was happening for myself, for my thinking process there was that I, like you say, I had a lot of fun being a clinical veterinarian. I really, really liked my job and I liked the relationships and I liked helping families and animals and all those things. But I felt like I had lots of knowledge and skills and abilities that I wanted to have a broader reach because I felt like I could help an individual animal, I could help an individual family, but I felt like that was kind of where it stopped. And so I started to kind of realize that, you know, a, a, a teaching learning environment might be a good place for that, right? Because you automatically have a broader reach when you, <laughs> sorry about the husband in the background, <laughs> automatically have a broader reach. Well, when, um... Steve, Steve has always been the kind of guy that just wants the spotlight. So this, <laughs> yeah, this Mike total, says you want the spotlight. Total sense. <laughs> okay. Um, there's going to be a little bit of action because there's a plumber coming. I'm sorry, you guys. Um, so um, this, this is life in the veterinary world. Yeah, it's just silly. We are boil we have a boiler in this house and it's the pump is gone anyways. Okay. Back to what I was saying. So, um we uh yeah, I, and I I had there had been a couple of different positions at the college previously that had been mentioned to me and I had no desire at that point in time to go back to the college because I was really liking what I was doing and again, we were, had such a fun work environment and there you know, there was so much learning going on. Um and then, yeah, I, I kind of got to the point where it felt like my time at that practice was done. And so I, um, I needed to figure out what I was going to do next. And so then this opportunity came up um, to apply position. And it was a brand new position that was being created for someone to come in and create um, the wellness and preventive medicine program, which was something brand new uh, for fourth year students. And then also... Um, what we were calling and we kind of still call the service learning program with the idea of providing experiential learning opportunities for students that would actually support communities to have more access to veterinary care um, than they did at, at the time. So um, that actually was that piece. It was a service learning piece that really was exciting for me. And I like creating stuff and it allowed me to have some creative expression which was really cool and to have some ownership and agency over what I was going to do so that was what kind of pushed me over the edge of of um you know making me feel like I was ready to apply for that um and it was like you and Rosalie helped me so much too, because I don't know if, well, you probably remember this, but you guys helped me and especially Rosalie helped me with like my CV and all of that stuff. Right. And like making my, my wording really strong for everything. So it was like, you guys helped me get that job, <laughs> which, uh, which was amazing. So. Well, I mean, thank you, but it's funny this many years past it, looking at it, it's like, you are made for this role. Right. Like, I don't know who, who's going to be more qualified or more passionate. Like this role is for you. So, yeah, I kind of, it, and it's funny because I kind of feel that way too. And maybe some of it is because I've made it what I'm interested in, in a lot of ways. Right. Like I've, I've kind of painted myself all over it. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I definitely feel that way. And it's always so interesting when something like that kind of falls out of the sky, right? Or it feels like it does. And I, that opportunity and several other opportunities have kind of helped me to realize 
you know, that when that happens, when something feels like it's fallen out of the sky into your lap, that's when you gotta like listen to it and do that thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's dive into it a little bit more. Um, let's start maybe with the perspective of veterinary students. Like how has that program changed from when all of us went through, you know, what do students experience and then what's the goal of that when they graduate and go out into the workforce? Yeah. So the, the biggest thing was that there was this acknowledgement um, amongst folks in veterinary medicine largely, but certainly, you know, the, the people we all learned from in vet school, um, that there was nothing in the curriculum that was specifically focused on how to manage well patients. And at least in, in terms of cats and dogs, and that that was a major gap because, you know, 80% of us end up going into some form of companion animal associated practice. And we were doing a huge disservice to our graduates and their employers by not providing students with a good foundation on how to manage healthy patients. And so, um, you know, and that goes into things like how do you prevent disease? How do you screen for certain diseases? How do you, um, you know, help people manage their husbandry so that animals are healthy and well? How do you talk about nutrition? How do you talk about behavior? All of those things, right? Um, and so there was there was a lot for us to to, to kind of incorporate and none of that was really being done yet. And so um, at the same time, there was this pretty big push uh, internationally, but certainly from the American Animal Hospital Association and from the um, AAVMC, so the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges to start to push preventive care as a really important part of companion animal practice. And so for us to be able to say, this is something that we actually have to offer that's valuable beyond what's in the syringe. Because for so many years, we were kind of taught like it's a vaccine appointment and all you're doing is poking things and shooting them out the door, right? And so, you know, that mentality of the 15 minute, 10, 15 minute vaccine appointment, you, you pump them through, um, you know, it's a production opportunity and, and then that's it. And now we were flipping that on its head and saying, actually, this is a relationship building opportunity. This is where we get to know our clients and our patients and they get to know their families and build that trust so that now when there's an emergency or when that animal has a health condition or needs a surgery, they're going to come to you because you've already, already built that trust. And so what you're selling during that appointment is not what's in the syringe. You're selling that relationship and your body of knowledge that you're offering to your clients and your patients. So that was sort of what we were trying to implement in our curriculum. And again, it's only in fourth year. We don't, we still are at the point where we aren't doing a lot of teaching of preventive care in the under years. We're, we're trying our darndest to get it more injected, but, um, but at least in fourth year, there was the opportunity. And so we started out as, a, as an elective rotation. And then there was uh, enough demand and enough acknowledgement that it was important <laughs> that it's now semi-core. So meaning that in fourth year, students either have to take our rotation or take field service, which is the large animal equivalent, right? Where they learn preventive care um, in horses and cattle. So, yeah. Nice. Can they take both or just one? They field can service? take both, but they have to take at least one. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, um, what I'm kind of hearing in there is some of the core pieces of this are communication and that relationship building. hundred percent. Yeah. And I mean, just that the fundamental stuff about knowing what are the diseases we vaccinate for? Why? How do we come up with a vaccine protocol and how do we individualize that? You know, what about parasites? And then, like I said, all the other stuff, nutrition, behavior, um, you know, those types of things. And so uh, dental care, dental screening. 
um, everything that kind of goes into that, that preventive care package. And so, um, so yeah, it, it, it's all of that, but you're absolutely right. Communication is a huge, huge part of it. And, and when I first started at the vet college, I was given the opportunity to start, um, uh, facilitating core communications courses. Cause we offer that now, right. Where we didn't get that when we were in vet school. So in third year, there's a big, um, course that's sort of the entire first semester that all students have to take that's core communications. And so they do classroom work and then they also do, um, simulated client scenarios with actors. And, um, and so I started helping facilitate those. And then actually, I think it was in 2016, had the opportunity to be um, certified as a, as a clinical communications instructor. So I went down to New Haven, Connecticut for a week, and I learned how to facilitate clinical communications learning for veterinary students. So it was pretty cool. That's neat. Can you, uh, can you go a little more into that? Because that is so interesting to me. And I, I see it, 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 it used to be kind of this intangible, I guess we would call it, where vet students, you have all of this knowledge. It's just a matter of, can you get that across to your client to build the relationship? So like tactically, yeah. what, are, what are you seeing to help those students come out ahead? So I think it's these, this idea of, and that's actually what I'm doing after this call is I'm doing this with interns as well. Um, but it's this idea of, what are the back pocket skills that you need to have that you can draw on in order to build relationships, build trust, communicate when it comes to difficult conversations and things like that, right? So there's all these different units and, and the, the um, organization that offers this, this training is called the Institute for Healthcare Communication. And it used to be uh, under the umbrella of Bayer. Bayer actually started this program way back when. Um, so, so, uh, you know, when we talk about core communications, we talk about things like open-ended questions, uh, nonverbal communication, empathy, and reflective listening. So those are the four core communication skills. And we, like, I could do an entire, have done many times, an entire lecture on that, those topics on their own. And what those do is those tell us, how do you best get information from your clients in a way that isn't colored by your own judgment? And how do you do that artfully, right? Because we didn't really learn how to do that. We were, they were like, don't use leading questions, but nobody really knew what that meant. Um, and so, you know, open-ended questioning. So who, what, where, when, why, how, tell me, describe, explain, right? Those are all ways to start open-ended questions. And then we all know about nonverbal communication that 80% of our communication is nonverbal. Um, and so talking about those things and how we can, you know, control those things in ourselves and notice those things in our clients. Um, reflective listening, which is like listening for the meaning behind what somebody says and then reflecting that back to them. And then empathy, which is feeling with people, right? So Brene Brown has an amazing video that I can send you the link for if you haven't seen it before about empathy and what that means. And there's a little cartoon with animals and I show it to students all the time because I think it's the most amazing thing. Um, and that I love Brene Brown, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, just having people develop those back pocket skills. And even if it's only that, right, even if they just get those four core skills, that's huge for being able to take a good history, relay physical exam findings, you know, build bonds with your clients over something that's great or something that's upsetting, um, empathize with someone who's having trouble with the cost of their animal's care, right? Uh, disclosing medical mistakes, all of those kinds of things are made easier when you have those communication skills. So I get super excited about this stuff because I think that it's something that's so fundamental to the art of veterinary medicine. And um, I always tell students, you know, for years, and it still happens, we've talked about these things as soft skills. And I absolutely hate 
that terminology because it it sort of makes this comparison between like the stuff that we do that makes us veterinarians and this other stuff that doesn't really matter so much right which and i think it's the exact opposite and these things are transferable so i encourage students to talk about this as transferable skills instead you know something that you can use everywhere in life with my kids with my husband with my friends <laughs> you know all of that stuff so Ah, uh, Jordan, you beat me to it. I I knew that you hated the term soft skills, so I was gonna poke you with that a little bit and tease this out of you, but you just you went straight to it. But I totally agree. It's forever when they were soft skills, it, it just does it no service at all because these are required. You need them in your back pocket to be a successful veterinarian. Yeah, absolutely. And if you don't have that though that's when you're going to run into trouble because it's going to be more difficult to to build relationships with your clients but also with your coworkers you're going to have a lot of trouble with conflict resolution you know you're going to have difficulty relaying results especially when the, it's difficult news you know all of those sorts of things so so i think yeah it's it's fundamental absolutely yeah and i like the piece how you said you you bring in actors now because you don't always get warning of when you need to reach in your back pocket, right? If you see on your schedule, vomiting dog is coming in, you can prepare for that, start making your list. You don't necessarily get warning when a client for some other reason, you know, goes off or snaps on you. And now you have to respond on the fly. So I like the experiential learning component of this. Yeah, and we're always kind of expanding it. And we're lucky at the U of S because the College of Medicine has a clinical communications center. So there's, there's, the, you know, this, this area of the College of Medicine and the health science building that's set aside specifically for this. And so they have, um, they have like, um, you know, simulator models and things like that, so that people can practice their clinical skills, but then they also have the capacity to record and do things like that so that students can practice their communication skills. And then they have these trained actors who are paid to come in and, you know, they have a script that they read, they know who their character is and they come and they, and they interact with the students. And then they also give feedback, which is super valuable because they've done this before, they know this scenario and they can tell students what they're experiencing as the, the quote unquote client and how that made them feel, what the experience was like for them. And that's something we don't always get in real life, right? We don't always get the feedback, particularly when it's good. We often get the negative feedback, but whether it's, you know, online or in person, um, but it's so valuable for students to get that feedback. And we also have them give feedback to their peers, which is another very, very, very important skill. And, and how does that get received by the students? I'm just thinking, like it can be nerve wracking to be videoing and recording yourself and then go watch the replay. So are they on board with it or reluctant? And if they are reluctant, how do you get them on board? Yeah, so it varies from student to student. And um, what we what we typically had done in non-pandemic times is we were actually, we started out with recording and then that didn't really work. We used to actually do it in the exam rooms in the VMC and that was a hot mess as you can imagine. Um, so we, we started using the CLRC and we would actually just all gather in the room. So there would be a facilitator, the actor, and then three or four students. And the student who was in the hot seat would be sitting there with the actor, her, their their peers would be behind them and then I would be kind of off to the side and and so there we we wouldn't necessarily record it for those purposes but we would be able to kind of talk about it in the moment the students are allowed to pause if they want if they're getting stuck in a certain area and ask for a little bit of input um, and then they would get sort of feedback in the moment uh, now they're doing it on zoom because of course we have limitations for what we can do in purpose in person um, due to the pandemic so so but they're still kind of all together at the time and so it's it's really interesting but 
there are some students who are excited about it because they're nerds like me and they love communicating and they think it's real cool. Um, but but most of them are quite nervous. And I think that that's always the case when there's stuff that's being done in, per in person in uh, in vet school is it's it's intimidating. <laughs> it's scary because you don't know what kind of feedback you're going to get. You don't know if you're going to you know forget what you meant to say um, and those types of things. So I think it can be it's, it's definitely nerve wracking. And we tell them that, right, like I'm not here to make you feel icky. I'm here to help you get through this scenario and learn and practice these skills. So like do what you got to do. And if you need to pause, pause, because this isn't meant to be a traumatic experience. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it's an incredible learning opportunity. I, I wish we had that. That would have been so cool when we went. Yeah, through. absolutely. Okay, Jordan. Um, a few things I heard in there. One is I think you invited yourself back to go through those four core communication skills on another time. So thank you for offering. We'll take you up on that offer. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I do want to move into the other component of your role because I know um, this is also an area of huge passion for you. And I don't know a lot about it. So I'm excited to learn here. You talk a lot about social accountability in veterinary medicine and in the vet profession. So I guess as a jumping off point, tell us what that is and, and let's, let's walk through that. Yeah. So when I talk about social accountability, accountability, I think about it as what are our responsibilities to each other, to the public and to animals and humans in general as veterinarians and therefore health professionals. So social accountability is a pretty big topic of conversation in the human medical field, um, because of course their patients are people. And, uh, and so figuring out how to improve um, access equity so that everybody has access to healthcare, which despite common belief in Canada, where we theoretically have universal healthcare, in fact, it's actually not universally accessible. Um, and so, the, you know, making sure that we are actually providing for that in the way that we train our students and in the way that we provide our services. Um, and then, you know, how do we need to adjust our thinking as health professionals in one of the whitest professions on earth, as we are, veterinary medicine, we're very non-diverse from, um, from a, a racial standpoint. Um, and, you know, how do we adjust our thinking so that we are, um, you know, intentionally anti-racist so that we can do a good job of serving people who are outside that sort of mainstream society, you know, upper middle class folks who can pay the fee-for-service vet bills um, on a regular basis. So how do we improve um, access to veterinary care generally and quality and safety of veterinary care more broadly? So that's what I think about when I think about social accountability. And it extends to, you know, again, what opportunities we give to our students, who we serve through the vet college and how we do that and what kind of foundation we give to the people who we involve in that service delivery so that we're doing that in a safe way, that we're not perpetuating harm. Okay. There's a lot, lot here. Um, I mean, where I go with that is I just want to ask you how, like, you, you know, because I, I don't know. So how do veterinarians do that? And I mean, I know we can go on the student side too. I know you lead a lot of like trips to Northern communities. You take students for vaccine, spay, neuter clinics, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'll leave it broad. How do veterinarians deliver this? Yeah. And so I think that we have to be really cautious when we are thinking about how, how we help that we intentionally step out of the savior role. 
because as veterinarians, we're helpers. And so we tend to want to fix things. So we see a problem, we want to diagnose it, figure out what the root cause is and fix it. And so that's great. Um, but we have to be careful that we're not doing that in a way that's actually making things worse. Because um, for anybody who knows anything sort of you know, even small, and, and, you know, we're recording this the day after the first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, right? Anybody who knows anything even small about how Canada has approached colonialism, um, and how we've approached, uh, you know, trying to um, be the caregiver and fixer for Indigenous people in Canada, that's mostly been done badly, right? We've we've largely done bad things um, and things that have caused harm and intergenerational harm. And, and the effects of those things have extended not only to people, but also to the animals that live alongside those people. And so when I think about, um, you know, the mindset that we have to have, part of that is how are we continuing to perpetuate and benefit from these colonial practices and this, this sort of way of thinking and how can we challenge that in ourselves so that when we're going to help, we're not just doing the same stuff over again, right? We're not saying mm, you aren't doing a good job of that. So we're going to take that opportunity away from you and do it ourselves. So for example, things like removing animals from communities without communities permission, that's an example of, of how white saviorism can sometimes show up. And so for me, um, you know, I always come back to relationships. So relationships are such a hugely important part of this. And when I'm taking students with me on these trips up north, I really lay that foundation for them. So, you know, we've developed these relationships over more than a decade. Um, we sustain these relationships all year long. I'm friends with many of the people who, who um, you know, have, have given me, like opened the door for me in the community. Um, and, and we continue to work together on little things year round. And so, you know, that's, that's the foundation and sort of humanizing our role, right? So we're not in there to come and save the day. We're there to say, hey, we're here. This is the service that we can provide. What is it that you need? Um, and then doing that in a way that is actually in true spirit of partnership as opposed to me being the fixer. Um, so, and, and I, I would say that I am learning all the time how to do that better because it's a natural state of being for us to, to both as veterinarians, but also just as, as white folks, um, to think that, that we have the best way to do things kind of under wraps and we, we know what's what. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning all the time to sort of challenge that way of thinking in myself and those automatic reactions. Um, and so, so yeah, those are the things that I try to do. So I try to provide students with opportunities to learn and, and sort of examine their own biases um, and figure out how those might show up in how they do business as a veterinarian in this context and then to 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 give them opportunities to learn different ways okay interesting so I'm, I'm trying to follow along with it when you're so let's let's pretend we're we're doing one of these vaccine clinics or spay neuter clinics does much change like in terms of the the veterinary practice itself right like I'm hearing you engage a lot with the, we'll call it the client in this situation. Um, does that change like the practice of it? Or I'm a bit confused on, on where we go there. Yeah, that's a super good question. And um, I think it doesn't exactly. 
it just makes us more aware. And so it's kind of, to me, very similar to what we were talking about with communication, being more self-aware around how you're, how you're approaching what you're doing is the important part. And the background for my students is that I, we spend a lot of time before we go on these trips, um, having them learn some stuff about themselves and some stuff about Canada's history, because we are largely in still in a time when our adult learners who come to vet school know very, very little about um, true Canadian history, right? So what's, what's actually happened between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country. And so we um, we provide them with a couple of learning opportunities. So one of them is um, we have done what's called the Kairos blanket exercise. And so it's an experiential um, exercise where there are facilitators who have a script uh, and this script is sort of made out to walk you through Indigenous, non-Indigenous relations in Canada from contact to now. And so all the things that have happened there and you you take on the role as a participant, you take on the role of, of Indigenous people, first peoples in Canada. Um, and so you go through, you know, what happened with um, intentional spreading of smallpox, for example, um, you know, children being removed from their home communities and taken to residential schools or being involved in the 60s scoop and, um, you know, people losing their land, having their land taken away from them, people being put onto reserves and having the size of those reserves shrink and shrink and shrink um, and, uh, and all of those things. And so, so it's a really, um, compelling and super engaged way for people to learn about this history. And it's usually really impactful. So we find that a lot of students are like, how did I not know this? Right. And, and it gives them a better opportunity to be able to say, okay, well, if, if all these if folks and not all of our clients up there are indigenous, but many are, you know, if, if these people and their families have gone through this stuff, like that kind of changes my view, right? And so that's a really important first step for me to, to make students challenge their own internalized racism because we all have it, right? Um, and so, you know, doing that, and then we we set aside time to also meet with our elder. One, a friend of mine in LaRange is an elder, and he's um, amazing. And so he'll come and do some teachings with our students, uh, primarily about dogs, and, and talk about dogs and the role of dogs in Woodland Creek culture. And um, and we'll do some uh, some sharing about about students' experiences and things like that. And he's uh, he's pretty amazing. And so our students get to know him, and then he comes and shares a meals with, a meal with us. So we get to spend some time with him, just chatting and developing relationships. And, and so I think for students, it's, it's a neat opportunity that not a lot of them get, but it also has meaning because it, it starts to change what they know about how to be a, a Canadian citizen in a way that is maybe less harmful than, than what maybe we've been involved in before. Because again, as white people, we tend to benefit from colonialism. And so acknowledging that and figuring out what we can do to sort of um, you know, sometimes get out of the way, but also if we're going to be veterinarians, how do we start to provide services in a way that is is less colored by all of that for us um, and uh, and increasing opportunities for people to access those services, right? Yeah, this is interesting. I don't, and correct me here if I'm wrong, this is where my head was going on this is I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm thinking this is going to benefit veterinarians, whether you're like back in practice, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, with sort of shelving that judgment piece, right? When the client comes in with whatever it is behind the scenes, and then they maybe they take that out on you or whatever happens in the exam room, you know, sometimes we have judgment about that and we don't know the story. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, do you get feedback on your students that have gone through sort of these trips with you and then how that relates back in their everyday practice? Yeah, absolutely. I get that one a lot. Just people sort of saying, yeah, this, because we talk, so when we talk about empathy, right, one of the things about empathy is suspending judgment, right? Trying to do a good job of suspending judgment. And, and you're absolutely right that I think doing these things and understanding that we don't know everyone's backstory um, and that, that people might be in a place where things are really difficult for them, but not a lot of people are really willing to share their vulnerability with us. Um, particularly if we're in a, a power hierarchy, which we are as veterinarians, right? We, we hold a lot of power. Um, and so, so yeah, thinking about, you know, what might be behind all of that and, and getting to understand a little bit more about, uh, you know, particularly again, in this context, we're talking about indigenous people in Canada, but, but some of the, you know, similar things could be true for, for other groups of people as well. Right. And so, um, um, figuring out how we just generally make veterinary medicine a, a safer space, both for learners, but also for service recipients, I think is really important because, you know, we always talk about this, but, but we all got into vet med because we love animals. But, and I think someone else has said this on your podcast at least once, but we're ultimately a human profession. And so to be able to develop our interpersonal and our human service skills is so crucial to being able to do what we do well and to advance our darn profession, because we should be always evolving, right? That's how this profession is built is so that we're always changing, evolving and doing better. Um, and we, we do a very good job of that on the clinical side. And, and sometimes the other stuff is left behind a little bit more. And so for me, that's where, where I am focusing a lot of my attention is how do we do that other stuff better? Interesting. Um, do you have anything to add, Jonathan? No, just a, a question of, of access and reach in, in hearing all of this. And, and it, um, Jordan, do you only do this out of the WCVM for your students there? Or where has this expanded over the last nine years as you've taken this role on? Because you're dealing with some very big in-depth topics there. Yeah, for sure. And so, um, I mean, it's tricky, right? So, so as far as service delivery goes, at this point in time, we've still got limited capacity for how we actually do this because it's, I'm the one who runs it and I have lots of help. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's, it's, my job assignment. And so as far as organizing and being in charge of and running, um, it's kind of my baby. And so that puts a limit on how much I can actually do, particularly because I'm working half time at the moment while I try and get this other degree done. And so, um, so as far as expansion goes, there has been none. <laughs> so we've worked with one community, one region for the past nine years. Um, and this fall, so in, in like two weeks, for the first time ever, we're, we're branching out to another community. So we're going, um, going to another community in the northwest part of the province uh, in the middle of this month. And so um, that's my like dipping my toe into expansion. And, and I think, you know, I see this going a lot of really interesting places should we have the resources to do that, right? And so should we have the resources to expand this program so that we actually have dedicated staff um, and you know, people who can go out and, and deliver the services and 
build and sustain the relationships and do the research and all of those things that might be involved in all of this, um, you know, this could be something massive. And I think, you know, I've had conversations with folks who are like, well, how do we expand this into BC? How do we expand this into Manitoba, right? Our partner provinces. Um, and I think that's definitely possible. And again, we need to have resources, both human and monetary in place in order to make that happen. So it's just a question of how we, how we do that. Um, but I've got, I've got big dreams and big ideas. It's just a matter of how we make it go, you know? Jordan, are you seeing um, other vet colleges doing similar things? Yeah, for sure. So, so we're not unique in this regard. Um, there are programs at all of the vet colleges in Canada that provide services to communities that don't have regular access to vet care um, and, uh, and do that as part of student learning. So um, Dr. Susan Coots at UCBM has been doing this for years and she's like a pioneer. She's been doing this in the Saatchi region of the, of the NWT for, I guess, like 10 or 12 years now um, and doing a rotation involved in that and taking students up there for a formal learning opportunity and um, there's a program at FMV, there's one at U of Guelph, there's one at UPEI. Um, so, you know, and, and they all do this in different ways, right? The programs all look slightly different um, and the ways that they're delivered and what they do with their students for their background learning and things like that. Um, and so there's this acknowledgement nationally and certainly internationally in other countries that have similar histories of colonialism. So, you know, for, for us, that's Canada, the US, New Zealand and Australia primarily. Um, you know, there are programs like this happening all over the place and there just isn't a really cohesive national or international approach. And I don't necessarily think it has to be international. We can learn from each other internationally. But I think on a broader scale within Canada, um, you know, our, our context is such that if we had a better national or even if we started provincially, right, approach to improve access to services, it would change the game, right? Because we all take an oath and that oath says that we are going to commit to the protection of uh, animal health and welfare everywhere for all animals. And we are right now doing a crappy job at that because there are a whole bunch of animals who don't even have access to veterinary care. And when we look at the definition of distress under a provincial animal welfare laws, not having access to veterinary care is one of them. So we are complicit in poor animal welfare. So I see that as, as a big part of our responsibility as veterinarians. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, what you're spearheading here, I mean, it's inspiring. So, I mean, good job. I know there's lots to go, but if we didn't have people like you, it, it wouldn't be where it is. Um, kind of one last question before we move on, because I know I'm chewing up lots of your time and it's a, it's a tough one. How do you see more diversity coming into veterinary medicine? Like you, you had mentioned, we're kind of one of the whitest professions. I know there's stats and I don't know them offhand, um, but how do we improve that diversity as a profession? This is also a great question. So um, there's, there's a whole bunch of sort of action happening um, from students in this regard. So there, there are lots of student groups that are, um, you know, working on some of this. And I know you had one of them on uh, a little yeah. while ago. And so, yeah. yeah, and so that that's awesome. And, and, um, and so I, I think students are more than likely going to be a big part of the driving force here. And, and I the way that I think of students is that students are the consumers, our main consumer group in, in veterinary academic settings, right? They're the ones who drive the program. Um, and so I always try and tell them that they have a lot of say, right? They're the ones who are paying for this learning. And so they have a lot of influence and they've got a pretty loud and important voice when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, what it is that they'd like to see in their education. So we've got, um, you know, some active groups at the WCV right now 
who are working on some of this stuff um, with our leadership and trying to figure out how do we actually do a better job of recruiting a more diverse student group. Um, and so I think that that's part of it, right? Getting to the heart of, of the recruitment piece, um, but it also has to start a lot earlier. So when we think about what it is that we wanna see as far as diversity goes, we probably want to see our general societal demographics reflected in the veterinary profession, right? And at this point in time, we're not nearly there, particularly when it comes to um, Indigenous populations and because in the Prairie Provinces we have the highest number of Indigenous people per capita of the rest you know anywhere in the in the country right it, with the exception of the territories um, but uh, but so so we need to be doing a much better job of recruiting and retaining Indigenous students but when we think about where a lot of Indigenous uh, folks are coming from you know many Indigenous youth are living on reserve um, and a lot of people don't understand how vastly underfunded uh, reserve schools are in comparison to provincially funded schools. And so already there are challenges with being able to deliver a robust science, technology, engineering, and math curriculum, right? A STEM curriculum for students who go to reserve schools and, and providing them with those opportunities. Similarly, when we're talking about how do we get people interested in a certain profession, it's usually because they've seen it in action. Right. And they can see themselves in that profession. So if you see yourself exemplified in that profession, you can see that as an attainable goal. But much of the time, if you're living in a community where there is no veterinary service, how would you even think of veterinary medicine as a career opportunity? Right. And so we need to do a better job of getting veterinary or animal health care just in general. Right. Whether it's by veterinarians or by others. And that's another big conversation um, into communities that currently don't have access so that people can see this, right? Like see the importance of this, see, you know, the value of animals reflected in the care we provide for them um, and the value of, of the caregivers, right? The value of the people who provide that care for the community largely, because when we talk about animal health care, it's not just for animals, right? That's a community health issue. So, we're, you know, if animals are healthy, the community's healthier too. And so, so, you know, those to me are sort of some of the background pieces that we have to have in place. And so being visible, being attainable and having people see themselves in our profession. So it's a little bit of what's the chicken and what's the egg. Um, but, but those are some of the things I think that we have to work on. Yeah, that's amazing. It's so simple when you say it, not simple to solve, but simple to understand because it's modeling. And that's when I, where I wanted to become a vet from was the vet coming out and doing C-sections on the farm. And you're like, wow, this is cool. Like yeah. I want to do what he's doing. So it, it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jordan. Well, we're, we're getting to that time. We're going to run you through our, our impact round, but we know you'll be back because you already volunteered. So <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be chatting again five years from now when I can pin you down again. <laughs> Best of luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First, first question. Are you a cat or a dog person? Okay. My answer to this is if we're talking about working with the species, I'm both. But if we're talking about living with them, I'm a dog person. Yeah. Cats make me kind of sneezy. So fair enough. True or false. I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian since I was a kid. I'm curious what you think my answer to that is. I probably should know it. I'm going to go false, but I don't, I'm not hundred yeah. percent on that. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely false. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know, or I didn't even think of veterinary medicine as an opportunity or something I wanted to do for myself until my mom's best friend who was a veterinarian said, what do you want to do with your life? And this is the year after grade 12, um, when I taken a year off of high school and, and, uh, and she said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I want to work with animals. And she's like, yeah, how are you going to do that? And I was like, well, I'll be a biologist maybe. And she's like, dummy, go to vet school. <laughs> I was like, Oh, okay. I had never, like, literally it had never crossed my mind. So after she said that and I was like, yeah, maybe that's not a bad idea. I could probably have some cool opportunities if I went to vet school. So, and here we are. That's awesome. And that's definitely a family member. Just the way the communication happened. That's like, that's definitely your auntie. She used (laughs) F-bombs. Okay. And I like, actually, that's it. Like, I'm going to throw that in right now. What is, this is new impact round question. What is your favorite swear word? Definitely fuck. (laughs) I can't. Believe- she hasn't used it the whole episode. I know she wants this published somewhere because it has not come up. It's because I know how to be episode. professional, you guys. I couldn't believe it. Like I was, I already had called our producer and I said, get ready with the beep button. Like this whole episode is just going to be beeped out all over the place. I'm a good kid. What can I say? Yeah. <laughs> you did well. You did very well. Uh, how would your friends describe what, what you do for a living? Uh, well, as exemplified by what you said, most of my friends have no idea what it is that I actually do. <laughs> um, a lot of my friends don't even know that I'm still a practicing veterinarian. So they're like, well, I can't come see you anymore. And I was like, well, you could. <laughs> Not if you have a sick animal. I don't see sick ones anymore. But if you have a healthy one, yeah, please do bring it to me. Um, but I, I think, you know, they know they know that I teach. I think they maybe think that I sit in a classroom all the time. Um, and And they know that I go up north and do stuff. That's kind of what they know that's it that is true because yeah we we chat reasonably often and i'm still sometimes like well what are you up to now sometimes sometimes (laughs) okay what what is your favorite hobby this okay so Today, I'm going to say gardening. So for the first time ever in my life as like a legitimate uh, adult, I was going to say a legitimate human, of course, I'm a human, but an adult, I had a successful vegetable garden this year. And it was so fun. And I like made so many delicious things. So gardening, and then like the eating of things that I get to do with the beautiful garden. Those are my those are two of my favorite hobbies right now. Nice. Yeah, you are a foodie. I like that. Uh, What in this world are you most grateful for? So, yeah, this is this is a difficult one because I think um, I have a lot to be grateful for. But I'm I'm going to say that in the context of this conversation, it's the ability to to think critically um, and then use my voice as an aspiring ally, both to my fellow humans and then as an advocate for animals and my patients in general. Um, you know, and this has kind of been a theme of our conversation, but also the relationships that I've been fortunate to develop, both like just lifelong, but also for sure in my career, because it's always so interesting to me how those can lead you to different things, right? How, how little, you know, little opportunities or big ones as the case may be can end up in your path through the relationships that you have. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thanks, Jordan. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, to have our relationship um, all the way back from vet school. And I mean, we remain friends all the way through. I know little heart for anyone on watching on YouTube. No, it's been great. I mean, you're one of the classmates that I stay in touch with, with the most since we graduated. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us here today. Anything to add in Jonathan? Just that you, uh, by coming onto the podcast, have both made this podcast better and have just opened up 
the additional research that we need to do and really happy with that. So really excited to have you on here, Jordan. And I have way more questions than answers now. It was really yeah. fun. Thanks guys. Yeah. I knew I, I said that even in our pre-recording, I was like, I'm, I'm going to have a difficult time asking you questions because we're venturing into an area that I, I don't even know enough about to ask proper questions on, but I mean, that's how you learn is you got to dive into it. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, if anyone wants to follow along with you or reach out, where can they reach you? So probably the best pace, place to get me is uh, my USASC email. So it's just uh, jordan.woodsworth at usask.ca. And um, if anybody wants to have conversations, please shoot me a line. Excellent. We'll get that in the show notes for everyone. All right, Jordan, as always, the last word goes to you. What message do you want to leave for the veterinary community? So um, I think, you know, I said part of it before, but I, I really believe don't be afraid to change the direction of your career, right? So um, when these opportunities feel like they're falling out of the sky into your lap, don't ignore them. Take them and, you know, jump on them and see where life might take you because it'll usually be fairly surprising and different from what you might have seen for yourself. But that's usually where I think the, the real treasures kind of lie are in those opportunities. Thank you for listening to the Veterinary Project Podcast. As a recap, on behalf of our hosts, the Veterinary Project Podcast will be releasing new episodes weekly. So be sure to tune in as we bring you more conversations aimed at helping you enjoy a life well lived. If you enjoyed what you heard on the show and you want to stay in the know, please like, love, and or subscribe to the podcast on the listening platform of your choosing, as we're available on all the usual suspects. If you know of others that may benefit from these conversations, we'd love it if you please share the show with them, as this will help us grow our community to reach more and more veterinary professionals. Speaking of which, if you are a veterinary professional and would like to get connected with more like-minded individuals who are joining us on this journey, please send an email to the Veterinary Project Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll invite you to be a part of our private Facebook group. General feedback, requests for information, or perhaps requests to be a guest on the show can also be sent to the Veterinary Project Podcast at gmail.com. Dr. Michael Bug and Dr. Jonathan Light, thank you for listening to the show, and we'll catch you again next week for another episode of the Veterinary Project Podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.